Our Old Testament lesson is Psalm 31, which we read some of the later parts of the psalm last week. Now we're looking at earlier part of the psalm, Psalm 31, verses 1 through 8, which can be found on page 445 in your pew Bibles, or 865 in large print. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, for all that you have shown to us, even today, of who you are, what you are like, and that we would come to know you personally. God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus, knowing that it is only through him that we come to know you. God, we ask that you would help us as we have um, spirits that are willing but flesh that is weak. That you would keep us from distraction. That you would keep us from all, um, all the things that would lead us away so that we would not hear your voice. I pray that you would help us to follow you and to trust you. Now this morning we pray that you would help us to hear your voice clearly. In your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 31, for the director of music, a psalm of David. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my, refri- my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Then turning to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. chapter beginning with therefore, which means you have to go home and read chapters 1 through 4 for homework. But explaining how God has justified uh, us through faith in Christ, he then begins chapter 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more 
shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have been looking this Lenten season at these words from the cross and seeing what it is that... Uh, what Jesus used his final breaths on the cross to say, uh, recognizing that that what you would use your final breaths to say would be those only those things that are of great importance, because it was very difficult under the circumstances to be able to say anything at all. And so far we have seen, you know, we're not taking these necessarily in order, uh, but we have seen that everything that he has said has been significant. And today is no different. We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. We're going to begin at the ending. We have seen this, uh, this scene unfold. And we have seen the crowds who are cheering for his, uh, for his crucifixion, who have then gathered around to watch him be crucified. It is a spectacle to watch him suffer and die. And there are people who have chosen to spend their time watching this. Not only watching but making fun of him as he dies. Hurling insults and uh, all of this kind of as a form of entertainment, but also, of course, as a way to make themselves feel better because he's the bad guy, we're the good guys. It's pretty clear. And how can we tell? Because he's on the cross and we're not. That's the scene in their understanding to this point. But do you notice that when he dies, things change. It becomes a very different scene. And nobody seems to be walking away, smiling and laughing and joking with their friends. That guy got what he deserved. They're not doing that. Even one of the men on the crosses next to him, we saw last week, said, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And now we see a centurion. Not even a Jewish man, but a Roman soldier who gets it and who says he was a righteous man just by the way he watched him die. And then it says everybody else that had seen the scene, you know, those who knew him, they weren't close. They were staying off far, but they're watching all this happen. But everybody else, 
goes away. Um, it says, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. The time we see this expression is in the, uh, the parable Jesus tells of the two men who went up to the temple to pray, and one man stood there and, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector, meanwhile, um, doesn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This beating of the breast was a sign of repentance and remorse and sorrow. And so when we see these people coming away in this way, they're not coming away from the cross the same way they went to it. But now they realize, you know, they came to it thinking, he's the bad guy, we're the good guys. They come away from the cross thinking, he was the good guy, we're the bad guys. The whole thing has been flipped around by how they see him die. And this may explain some of the, res- some of the response we see through the book of Acts as um, Pentecost, when Peter preaches, and they say, what shall we do? You know, we realize at the cross that he was a good man, but now you're telling us he was actually the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who God had promised to send to save us, and he finally sent him, and we killed him. What do we do? Let's repent. Be baptized. That is what happened in response. The crowd, the centurion, was watching at a distance. But what had actually happened? Well, what had happened were, well, three main events. It says it was noon and darkness came over the whole land. Now, if it had been you know, 10 o'clock in the evening and darkness came over the whole land, nobody would think anything of it. That's what happens at 10 o'clock tonight. But at noon, that doesn't happen. Because at noon, that is when the sun is supposed to be shining the brightest. And did this really happen? Of course. But is there more to it than just that it really happened? Of course. And symbolically, we have several things going on, but one thing that ought to jump out at us is that if Jesus is the light of the world, then when Jesus is in the world, the world ought to be the brightest. But as John tells us, when he came into the world, the world didn't recognize him. And so, to the cross he goes. And as Jesus dies, we have, even at noon, the world goes dark. No more light. Darkness is also, of course, a symbol of God's judgment. And so as Jesus is dying, we don't just have the removal of light, we have a sign of God's judgment that is overshadowing Jesus on the cross. A judgment not only on what is taking place, but a judgment on all sin that Jesus is taking on himself. And then we have another event. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Is that a big deal? Only if you understand the temple and the curtain. So there are a couple things happening here. The temple was a way that the people could come and approach God. And there, everything was laid out in a very specific way for them to be able to approach God through sacrifices and uh, priests, etc., etc. And there were various levels and who could get how close and when. But the closest 
could ever get to God was the Holy of Holies. This is where God said he would make his dwelling place among the people. And there was a big, thick curtain that covered the Holy of Holies. That was the only way in, was through this curtain. And only one person could go in and only once a year. That was the high priest. When, the, when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn. And that is two things at once going on. We're told that the curtain is actually torn top to bottom, which I suppose that doesn't you know, necessarily matter. It could have torn anyway if the point is just for it to be open. But I think there's something about it being torn top to bottom that is, um, is important. That is, one, it's kind of a, a sign that this was not done by people. They couldn't have torn it from there. This was huge. It was tall. But that God is doing the tearing. Secondly, it gives an image of what's happening. It gives the image of sorrow and of grief that we see throughout the Bible where people who are in sorrow and grief, and especially when there is a blasphemy going on, what happens is someone will take their robe and they will just tear it from top to bottom as a sign of sorrow, grief, and or blasphemy. And this is what we see in all uh, going on with Jesus' death. Is God grieving the loss of his son? in sorrow for what is taking place, but also in the blasphemy that is occurring. But it's more than just that. It's not just him tearing it in symbol of sorrow, but it also is opening the way. Because now, what stands between the Holy of Holies and everybody else? Nothing. The curtain has now been removed, and now there is not only you know, a way for people to come in. But it's a way for God to meet with his people again. This happens because of the death of Jesus and through no other way. In this, Jesus fulfills all of the sacrificial system that had come before. In this, Jesus fulfills uh, all of the uh, promises and predictions of the Messiah and this he fulfills all the law, and this he fulfills all this setting up of the tabernacle and later the temple. Jesus makes the way back to God where there hadn't been one. The third thing that happens here, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said this, he breathed his last. This particular saying. <clears throat> once again, he's quoting scripture as we read from Psalm 31. And so once again, that's what's coming out of Jesus even in this moment is he's quoting scripture, although he does alter it a little bit. He doesn't just say, into your hands I commit my spirit, but Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's still this relational element even at this time, even while he's on the cross. But here's what it's... What is most profound about this particular saying at this particular moment is it's easy when things are going well. If you're on the road and you're driving along and things are going well, you can put your car in cruise control and you kind of let the car do the driving. 
You know, you, the steering, but it takes, yeah, that's fine. But when situations are stressful and difficult, you take it out of cruise control, I hope. And, <laughs> and you make sure that you are alert and you have hands on the wheel, feet on the pedals, you're, you're in control. And uh, there's a bumper sticker that went around years ago. It was pretty popular. It just said, God is my co-pilot. You remember that one? God is my co-pilot. And uh, in, in, kind of in the same way as cruise control or something like that, where you know I've got this, but God can help me to get where I'm going. And I'll, I only bring that up because there was another bumper sticker that came along afterwards that is more theologically correct, <laughs> which says, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's what's going on here, is that Jesus is saying, you know, and this is not, by the way, the first time that we see Jesus living this kind of a life. This has been the pattern of his life from the very beginning. Into your hands, not in my hands. I take my hands off. This is your hands on this. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, you know, this is not what I want, but if this is what you want, I'm all in. Because I know that you know what's best. Now, like I say, that's really easy to pray when things are going well. It's hard when things are not going well because that's when we want to take control again. And that's when we want to say, God is my co-pilot instead of switching seats. Um, the reason for the picture on the front of the bulletin is because I live with an art teacher. My wife is the, uh, the art teacher at the high school and one of the things she teaches is clay ceramics, and one of the things she teaches as a part of not only the clay, but all the units, she has this expression that is, um, everything beautiful, everything beautiful has to go through the uglies. Everything beautiful has to go through the uglies. And she has to convince her students of this, because in the process of making something, it gets to that ugly point, and that's when they want to give up. That's when they want to say, it's not going to work, it's not, and she says, it has to go through the ugly. That's the only way it gets to the beautiful. And, uh, and you can see this, you know, that, that image here of, you just imagine clay on a potter's wheel. And if the artist knows what they're forming, there will be a time where anybody watching would say, that's eh, not, not going to work. <laughs> that looks horrible. But they know what they're doing. If you trust them, they'll make something beautiful. And for us, the reason I bring that image in is because it's during the uglies that we're tempted to turn away. When things are going wrong, that we say, there's no way you can make something beautiful out of this. You know what? Never mind. I'll take it from here. And as the clay on the potter's wheel, we start trying to shape ourselves into something beautiful, and it just goes from bad to worse. But here Jesus is in the middle of what looks like the ugliest of all situations, where there's no possible way that anything beautiful could be made out of this. And it's in this moment, abandoned by God, abandoned by his disciples, abandoned by everyone, and hanging there in excruciating pain, and yet in the middle of the ugliest of all the uglies. His Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. In other words, I trust you no matter what. An unconditional trust 
There is no other way, by the way, than an unconditional trust. We always want to put conditions on it and say, I will trust you as long as, and then we follow it up with something else. But it has to be an unconditional trust. It will never make it through the uglies. We have to say, I will trust you no matter what. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon he preached in 1889, I just love going back to old sermons where you see how God has been preaching his word through all the generations. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this uh, particular passage, said, What a place to be in, in the hands of God. There are the myriads of stars. There is the universe itself. God's hand upholds its everlasting pillars, and they do not fall. If we get into the hands of God, we get where all things rest, and we get home and happiness. We have got out of the nothingness of the creature into the all-sufficiency of the creator. Oh, get you there. Hasten to get you there, beloved friends, and live henceforth in the hands of God. He is the only one who can hold us there. But if we will pray, committing ourselves, our spirits to his hands, putting our lives in his hands, trusting him no matter what, he has promised to bring us through all of the uglies of this world and make us into something beautiful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.